Welcome to First Importance, featuring the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist West Memphis. We're so happy you've chosen to listen, and we pray that you'll be blessed by this message. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to join me in the Gospel of John in chapter 2. John chapter 2. And as you turn there, I want you to get buckled up because we are starting to get into the real action of the Gospel of John. Chapter 1 really focused our hearts on introductions. You will remember those words uh, of the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. We were introduced to Jesus and the eternal nature of Jesus, how he is God, how he has always existed, how he will always exist. He didn't just, it's not that he was actually born uh, uh, on uh, Christmas Day. He was. He did take on our flesh uh, so many years ago in that little town of Bethlehem. But Jesus has always existed and will always exist Chapter 1 gives us these introductions. We're introduced to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, who will come and baptize and prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. We will, uh, uh, we will in chapter 1, we did, we learned about uh, uh, not only Jesus and John the Baptist, but as we got toward the end of uh, chapter 1, we, we were introduced to the first five disciples of Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist is preaching. He sees Jesus walk by and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples decide to go and be his disciples. Go to, decide to go and be Jesus' disciples. Those first two, Andrew and John. And after Andrew meets Jesus, he immediately goes and he gets his brother Simon, who's a fisherman. He says, Simon, you've got to come. We've met the Messiah. And Simon comes to Jesus, and Jesus renames him Peter, the third disciple. The next day in John chapter 1, uh, I believe it's verse 35, actually verse 43, we read of the call of Philip. And Jesus passes by Philip, and he tells him, follow me. And Philip, Philip gets up and follows him. But he, after he meets Jesus, he wants to go and tell somebody about it. So he gets Nathaniel, and Nathaniel says, can there be anything good that comes out of Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. And Nathaniel comes, and Jesus sees him at a distance. He sees right through him, and he says, Nathaniel, Here's an Israelite. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says, you know me? How did you know me? Jesus said, I saw you under the tree, and I knew you. And he was amazed. Chapter 1 really deals with introductions, but chapter 2 is when we really begin to speed up. And Jesus will begin his ministry as only Jesus can with a miracle. This is one of eight signposts. John calls them signposts. One of eight signposts throughout uh, the book of John that give us clarity, that show us that Jesus is who he says he is. Remember, the apostle John who wrote this book said that the, the writing of this book had this purpose. I'm writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. So Jesus begins with this miracle, this sign. And if I'm honest with you, 
in the flesh. When I look at this miracle, we read it and we're all like, okay, that's it? That's how you began your ministry? I mean, Jesus could have done anything. There's the Dead Sea in Israel. He could have walked up to the Dead Sea that is so dense, so filled with salt that it can't contain life. He could have walked up and touched it, and the whole thing could have came to life, and everyone would have believed, but that's not what Jesus did. He could have caused the Red Sea to part again. He could have done any number of things, but his first miracle seems to be unimpressive to us. It seems subtle. But I want us to look at this passage today and see what makes this miracle so miraculous. I want us to see what makes its timing so poetic and for us to see what makes its worker so wise. Would you join me in John chapter 2 as I read God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Hear now his words. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray now, please, Father, that you would give me wisdom to say the things that you want me to say. Lord, that you would use this weak preacher to preach the power of your gospel. Let it be your words. You come out and speak to the hearts of your people today. And I'll be very careful to give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This miracle seems so subtle on the outset. It seems so unimpressive just on the surface that none of the other apostles even used it in their writings. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they do not record this miracle. John is the only one who records this miracle. You know, the word miracle is overused today. When we witness the birth of a child, we, we hold that baby, that beautiful baby in our arms, and we say, wow, what a miracle. But that's not really a miracle because most of us know how that works. We know how that came about. We have some idea. It happens within the natural order of things. When we see a sunrise or a sunset, a particularly beautiful one where all the colors and the spectrum seem to meet at the, at the end of our view. We look at it and we say, what a miracle. But it's not really. Every day the earth turns on its axis. Every year it makes its trek around the sun. 
It's what we understand is being scientific naturally. Uh, we can explain these things naturally. Miracles are things that happen that there are no natural uh, or scientific excuses for. When God intervenes and changes the natural order of things, we misuse it. Like to say, uh, if my children sleep all night, it'd be a miracle. That, that might be a miracle, actually. I think that might be a miracle. But we're going to explore today the miracle that occurred here at Cana in Galilee. We're going to see the wonder of it. And we're going to do it in a little bit different way than we normally look at a text. And so if you join me here in chapter 2 and verse 1, we're going to go word by word. And I want you to see just a, a few points today. And I'm going to make my real observation at the end, okay? So number one, I want us to see the scene. The scene that is set. Chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. Uh, so many commentators have written pages and pages and pages just on these few words, the third day. They have speculated on what it's actually referring to, how many trees have given their lives so that commentators can go on and on about this. But it seems fairly obvious to me that this ties chapter 1 together. God had just told Nathaniel, Nathaniel, look, you heard me call out your name. I knew who you were before I even met you, and you were in wonder, and you were calling me your Savior and your Messiah. And Jesus says to him at the end of chapter 1, you're going to see a lot greater things. I mean, the wonder and the awe that you're going to experience in following me is not going to be compared to anything else. And so what John is doing, he's tying that too. Just a few days after that, three days after that occurred is when this uh, takes place. What's also interesting is that nothing in our lives happens by accident, does it? God doesn't work in coincidences. The fact that this is the third day has extreme significance for the believer. There are lots of numbers that have particular ideas behind them in the scripture. The number three carries with it the idea of perfection. The number three is used over 467 times in the Bible. We know it as a number of perfection because we serve a triune God, don't we? The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, you're trekking with me today. You're on board. There's three there. It was the third day that of creation that God spoke and the land came up from its watery grave and began to sprout vegetation. It was three days that Jonah spent in the belly of that great fish. And it's three days that our Savior would soon spend in the heart of the earth in his grave after having been crucified. Three has a very important connotation with it in Scripture. Hosea will say in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2, after two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Here's the idea. On the third day, after his ministry begins, Jesus walks into town, and he's about to do something miraculous. He's about to do something wonderful. On the third day, he says here in verse 1, there was a wedding. Weddings are completely different now than they were in the New Testament era. As a matter of fact, it's kind of flip-flop. In the New Testament era, the focus in a wedding was on the groom. I don't know of one wedding whose focus is on the groom today, and hallelujah, praise the Lord. 
But the focus was on the groom. And a wedding would often last in the New Testament era longer than, uh, or longer than a day, several days, up to a week, a wedding would last. And it was the end of a year-long agreement where two families would come into agreement. A groom would take a wife. She would be his wife in every way, but living together in physical intimacy. They would be made, they would be betrothed to one another for a year. And at the end of that year, they would have this wedding and celebrate and consummate their marriage at the end of the wedding. Here, at the entire year before leading up to the wedding, the groom prepared uh, the house that he and his wife would live in. He would prepare the house for the children that they would have. He would be saving up for the wedding because in the New Testament era, it would be the groom's family that would pay for the wedding. And I know a lot of fathers here today going, man, I wished I could have got that deal. But it was the groom who took care of those things. The wedding was his financial burden. And he provided the food and drink for every guest. He oversaw all of that. This was his moment to show that he could take care of his bride for their entire life together. The wedding was this great celebration. The Bible tells us here that it was in Cana. That's about 10 miles north of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, where Jesus spent majority of his childhood, where he grew up. And um, uh, we, we know that Cana was a small town. Most likely, people from Nazareth and Cana would have known one another. Nonetheless, we see here that uh, the mother of Jesus and Jesus were invited to this wedding. Hey, what's interesting here is that in the Gospel of John, we never hear the name Mary. Did you know that? In the Gospel of John, all you will ever hear is the mother of Jesus. In a few moments, you'll hear that Jesus even distances himself from his mother. And it carries with us this idea that we as believers must go to Jesus. We don't need an intermediary. We don't have to go to Mary and speak to her first or ask requests from her to ask from Jesus. No, we as believers can go to Jesus. Mary had to approach Jesus just like everyone else. We'll see that here in a few moments. But nevertheless, the scene here is a wedding on the third day. The mother of Jesus was invited. The situation, look in verses 3 through 4. When the wine ran out. Throughout Scripture, wine is thought of as a symbol of joy. Where there was much wine, there was much joy. And where there was no wine, there was no joy. Now, we could spend some time here today talking, and I could spend the rest of the service talking to you about how when you compare today's wine to the wine of the New Testament, you're really speaking, you're not comparing apples to apples. We don't have time to do that today. Uh, we don't have time for me to go into that long argument. I would love to talk to you about it a different time. But nonetheless, Jesus, it comes to this wedding and they are celebrating and all of a sudden the wine runs out. Here's the point. The party's over. The celebration is over. Time for everybody to go home. They're in the middle of the planned party and all of a sudden the wine has run out. It is impossible for me to overstate to you how embarrassing this was for the groom and for his family. It was so completely embarrassing for them because here the groom was making a statement on his wedding day of how he can take care of his bride and he had not prepared in advance. He was either negligent 
or he was just plain unprepared. And this negligence actually left the groom open to lawsuits. Okay? This was uh, the, the potential for the bride's family to sue him and say, you can't take care of our daughter. You can't even provide for the wedding as we agreed upon. This would have been so completely embarrassing for him. Here was the moment of his life, his chance to show everyone how he can take care of his bride, and it's come to an end. The wine has run out. The family would have said, there's no way that he can take care of our daughter. It would have been a tragedy. It would have been an embarrassment of epic proportions. But now let's see what happens in this situation. Mary hears of it. The mother of Jesus hears that they have run out of wine, and her first response is that she goes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. Now, once again, you can go to commentators here and you can read all kinds of good information. People will say, People will say that Mary here is asking Jesus to perform a miracle. I've heard preachers say and speculate that Mary's saying to Jesus, this is your time. You've got to step forward at this time. All these years that people haven't believed me when I said that I was a virgin when you were born. All those years that people haven't believed me about telling them the story of Gabriel. It's time to vindicate your mother. There are commentators who say that. I don't read that here. Maybe, maybe it could be there, but I don't read that there. I don't read that there for a couple reasons. Number one, we will see at the end of this text that this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. All these extra biblical accounts that say that when Jesus was a child, he, he took these clay pigeons and, and breathed on them and spoke to them and they came to life and did all these things. And all those things are outside the Bible. We don't consider it to be true. We don't consider it to be right. This will be his first miracle. And Mary comes to him, and she is going to say to him, they've run out of wine. You know, one of the things I want you to notice here is Joseph is not in the picture. Have you noticed that? Sometime in between the time that Jesus got lost in Jerusalem, or at least he, uh, his parents couldn't find him in, uh, at the age of 12 until now, sometime it seems as if Joseph has passed away. And when Joseph passed away, who does it fall to to take care of the widow, the firstborn son? Who else would you take your problems to if you were Mary? Right? It's Jesus. I mean, he's literally good at everything he does. Imagine being a sibling, okay? I mean, you're, you're, I mean, you're only really half-sibling, but I mean, imagine the pain in that household of living up and, and the, the difficulty it must have been for them to believe is astounding, but Mary would have taken all of her problems to Jesus. By the way, a really good lesson to learn from Mary. When you have a problem, who should you take it to? Jesus. The first time she encounters this problem, she brings it to Jesus. She tells him they have no wine. And what he says comes off harsh. Read those words. He says to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That sounds harsh. That sounds really harsh. As a matter of fact, when I heard this as a teenager, I tried to use this passage as validation to call my mom woman, and she let me know real quick I wasn't Jesus, and she wasn't married. Uh, but I might have walked on water after what she did to me that day. It comes off harsh, but the term woman here is a term of respect. 
He is telling, he, he is not uh, um, being disrespectful when he calls her woman here. As a matter of fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he looks down to Mary, and the Apostle John is next to her, and as a means of taking care of her after he is gone, he looks to Mary and he says, Woman, behold your son, referring to John. And he says to John, Son, behold her. Behold your mother. Okay, he's telling John, take care of her. It's this idea, woman is not, is not a harsh term in this context. But it does seem to get harsh. He says, what does this have to do with me and you? Literally in the Greek, what to me to you? That's the words in Greek. What to me to you? What Jesus is saying here is, I'm a guest at this wedding. It's the groom's job to provide the wine. This has nothing to do with us. This is not our affair. This is none of our business. Jesus is saying, I have a day that's coming up, a day that is set for me to display this glory in a grand way through my death on a cross. It's not about today. This is not my job. This has nothing to do with us. It seems like a harsh response. But he's just telling this has nothing to do with it. But now let's look at the solution. Verses 5 through 10. We have seen today not only the scene and the situation, but now look at the solution. Verses 5 through 10. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Here comes Mary again, giving and bringing the good advice. Probably no better advice could be told to the church today than for you to hear the words that the mother of Jesus said to the servants at that wedding do what he says. Do what he says. Are you in doubt today? Are you struggling with things today? Listen to the advice of the mother of Jesus. Just do what he says. Are you going to have to pay a penalty for it? Maybe, but just do what he says. What's the best thing to do in your life? Just do what he says. The mother of Jesus gives some great wisdom here. Just do what he tells you. But in verse 6, we learn some more things here. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. We're told that these uh, six jars are here. John's very, uh, John wants us to understand that these jars serve a purpose. These six jars, which by the way, six is the number of man. It's the number of being incomplete or imperfect. Seven is another, is another one of those numbers that talks about perfection. And that's why in Revelation when you read that the Antichrist has a number, his number is the number of perfect imperfection, 666, the number of man. Here's six water jars, and they're empty. Now, they had been used for cleaning all the dishes, all those dishwashers back there cleaning up, and they are working hard to make sure that every utensil, every bowl, everything is perfectly clean. And they clean not for the same reason that we clean today, right? right? We clean today like we clean so that we don't get sick, right? All right? Some of you are with me. Some of you are, are not with me. That's okay. We clean today. We wash our hands. Like, what do we got to, what songs do we got to sing now and finish the song before we finish washing our hands? We do that so that we don't get sick. But in the New Testament era, for the Jewish people, they cleaned so that they would be spiritually clean. 
I guess the thought was almost to them, if they worked enough on the outside, it would make its way to the inside. They were concerned about the outside of things. And so all these people, there's, there's these gallons and gallons of water that have been used to clean the dishes. And Jesus says, go get those huge jars that, that hold about 60 uh, gallons of water in them. And I want you to go fill them up with water. And they do that. He says, fill them up to the brim. To the very top, nothing else will be added. Put them in these stone jars and fill it up to the very top. And so they do it. And when they come back looking for the next step, they, uh, he says, take a, a ladle to the master of the feast. And they take it to the f- master of the feast. And then boom, it's wine. The master of the feast says, this is the best wine I have ever tasted. Don't you know? He calls the groom over here. Don't you know you were supposed to serve? I heard that you were about to run out, but you have reserved the best for last. Don't you know you served the best first? It's kind of like when we have company over to our house. We give them the best food that we have first, but then if they stay longer, they get those old ham and turkey sandwiches that we've been saving in the bag that probably should have thrown away about a week ago, right? He says, we are supposed to serve all this first, and whenever everyone had drunk it, then, then they could go home or they'd be drunk and they couldn't tell the difference. He goes, what? Why in the world? And it's just all of a sudden this miracle occurs. It's so subtle. He doesn't wave his hands. He doesn't say, wine. Right? He doesn't pray over it. He doesn't touch the jars. I mean, he is completely removed from this situation. Here's this small little wedding party in Cana with people who had no real, uh, nothing to gain in it. Uh, from Jesus who went down and and obeyed as he said and here they are witnesses to his first miracle Richard Crashaw says of this miracle he says the water saw its maker and blushed I like that he would have left them conservatively 20 to 30 gallons of wine that was a charitable gift to the wedding party but there's no fanfare, there's no theatrics, just this small wedding party. As a matter of fact, many people in the wedding party probably would not have even known what had occurred. And that's where I want us to pick up on this last point. And I'll be brief. Because we've seen the scene, we've seen the situation and the solution. But now, now in verse 11, I want you to see the Savior. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus will manifest, he'll display, he'll put out on front the glory of God to those people. And what is the result? Those who are his believers, those who, who are his followers, they believe in him. Not everyone at the feast believed in him. Much chapters later in the Gospel of John, not everyone who eats the bread that he, that he broke, not all of the 5,000 people who ate that bread that he multiplied believed in him. But you can guarantee one thing, friends. If you're called by him, if you love him as he's loved you first, you believe in him. They look at this miracle. They see his glory on display. 
In this miracle, we see three things. Real quick, we see that Jesus is the joy restorer. Jesus restored our joy with his life. You see, here at this wedding, the joy had run out. The wine was gone. The party was over. They were supposed to celebrate, but now it's all over. And Jesus comes into the wedding. They think the party's over, but it's just about to get started. You see, for years and years, God's people had waited on the Messiah. They had done their best to obey the law. They had done their best to, to do the right things, but they had still fallen so short because the Bible says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They had tried so hard and they'd waited so long and the joy was gone from their religion. They had worked, but there was no relationship. Everything that they had done had still left them as empty as those jars that were waiting to sanctify their plates and their bowls. But then enters Jesus, and Jesus is the joy restorer. Friends, I want you to know today, whatever difficulty you're going through, whatever problems in your life, whatever pain is in your heart, I want you to know that Jesus is the joy restorer. Whatever problems you have in your life, Jesus wants to bring joy into your life. He wants to bring to you a supernatural joy, joy that's abundant, joy that overflows, joy that exists even when you're being beaten. He wants that joy to be present in your life. John 17, 13, Jesus tells the Father, I've come that my joy may be fulfilled in them. And here at this wedding, when he turns the water to wine, we see that the jo he is the joy restorer. But secondly, I want you to see that he is the peace procurer. You see, they washed those dishes back in the back. They scrubbed those dishes because they wanted to be clean on the inside. And they, they wanted to be clean on the inside so that they could have a right relationship with God. They understood. They understood that there was a separation between them and God. But I can imagine them back there washing those dishes and never really getting the inside clean, just getting the outside clean, never actually getting the inside clean. And I'm reminded of that verse that tells us that there's not a, a blood of any sheep or bull or, or, or lamb or goat that's ever been sacrificed, that's ever brought forgiveness for sins, but Jesus did on the cross what millions and millions of sacrifices could never have done. Jesus is our peace procurer. At this wedding, when he steps in and he fills up those those jars that were meant for cleanliness that were empty and he fills them up and he fills them up with wine. He is, he is saying that he's going to take on the pain of the blood. Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. He's the peace procurer. You know Moses, when he was down in Egypt, the first miracle that he did for everybody was he took, he took that staff of his and he placed it down in the Nile River. And when he placed it down in the Nile River, the Nile turned to blood. First miracle. Water to blood. And Jesus walks into a little wedding in Cana and says, I got you one better. Because I'm going to pay for the blood you can have the wine. He's our peace 
procurer. That's why we heard just earlier in the Gospel of John that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. That's why we sing that song, There is a Fountain. Filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Friends, I want you to know that Jesus is our peace procurer. And he bought our peace with God at a high price. That that perfect one and only son of God who performed this miracle in Cana just years later would go to a hill called Calvary and there he would die on the cross for you and for me. He says, I'll take care of the blood so that you can have the wine. But thirdly, I want you to see that not only is he the joy restorer and the peace procurer, but he's the life provider. Oh man, when you walk into that wedding and the groom really, really messed up, it could have been very embarrassing. And it was no one's fault but his own. He was either negligent or just, I don't know, just plain didn't have it together, didn't plan correctly, whatever it is. He didn't have it right. And he displayed for everyone at that wedding, if they would have found out about it, he would have displayed that he was incapable of taking care of that bride. And if he was incapable of doing it on that day, how could he possibly take care of her the rest of their lives but then steps in Jesus then steps in Jesus you know we as people are always trying to take care of ourselves but we find out that we fall so terribly short but Jesus is the life provider he steps in he takes the place of the groom. He takes care of those whom he loves. And the Bible tells us that because he went to the cross and died and was placed in that grave and rose on the third day, Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you again to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Jesus cares not only about providing the peace for us, not only about giving us joy, but about providing us life, life that is abundant, life that is overflowing, life that is eternal forever and ever. Friends, you don't have to worry about, about sickness and death here on this earth. You don't worry, have to worry about the events of COVID-19 or economic downfalls. You don't have to worry about this country coming to an end or this world stopping, stopping spinning. You don't have to worry about those things because our God has gone to prepare a place for us. And if he's gone to prepare a place for us, he'll come and receive us again to himself. That's what's said in that first miracle. He steps up. He takes the place of the groom. He is the life provider. Jesus restored our joy with his life. He procured our peace by his death. And by his resurrection, he has provided us life that is eternal. But if you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Bible says that life is not yours yet, but he wants to give it to you. We're on a sinking ship. We deserve death and hell because of our sin, but God has provided a way out. He's provided salvation through his son Jesus, that if you would repent of your sins and call upon his name, if you would turn from your sins and turn to him, the Bible says that you'll be born again. You'll be a new creation. You'll have him in your heart and your life, and you'll be saved, and you'll have this life.
If you're here today and you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, if you've never repented of your sins, come speak to me or another counselor during this time of invitation and response. But if you're here today and you know Jesus and the joy has been gone and the peace has been robbed from you and you feel like life has been robbed from you as well, I want you to understand something. In this very first and subtle miracle, Jesus displays his glory, that he is the joy restorer, he is the peace procurer, and our Jesus, my Jesus, is the life provider. Thank you for joining us for this episode of First Importance. We invite you to check out our other sermons on this podcast and to join us in person on Sunday at 8.30 or 11 a.m., as well as streaming live on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 11 a.m. We hope to see you soon at First Baptist West Memphis, where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.